1: The Dateable podcast features real stories from real people of how they make modern dating work, or not. I'm your host, Yue, former dating coach turned dating insider, if you will. On each episode, you'll hear commentary from my producer, Julie Kraftchik, and other surprise co-hosts. This episode of Dateable is brought to you by 500 Brunches, Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Dateable, a show all about modern dating. So we were invited to be on an episode of KQED's The Forum, where Kate Julian from The Atlantic came on to talk about an article she recently published about this sex recession that we're in. And in her article, she talks about how young people are having less sex than ever And there's like a sex drought going on. But in in this conversation that we had, a very interesting topic was brought up where she mentioned that one of the most popular courses at Northwestern University is this course called Marriage 101, taught by Dr. Alexandra Solomon. So we thought... We got to get her on the phone. We got to get her on an episode. I want to hear
0: what this is all about. (laughs) Because
1: the most popular course when I went to college was like computer science, right? (laughs) Or like computer science 101. (laughs) But people are much more interested in learning about marriage and how to make marriages last, which is great. I love hearing that. So we have Dr. Alexandra on the phone right now. Hi. Hi, you guys. Thanks for having
2: me on. Thanks for
1: coming on. I'm going to give a little background on who you are. She is uh, from Chicago. She's been there for 23 years, originally from Detroit. She's married in her mid-40s. And she specializes in sex, love, and intimate relationships for the last 20 years. She does individual and couples therapy. She teaches and trains graduate students to do couples therapy and teaches a globally recognized undergraduate relationship course at Northwestern University. Uh, she currently writes and presents to a wide variety of audiences and is a huge love nerd. <laughs> I've never heard That's that before. Claim love nerd. Love, I love nerd. It. I want to be a love nerd. <laughs> and likes to turn other people into love nerds as well. Okay, there we go. We'll learn about how to be love nerds ourselves. <laughs> so let's first Start with talking about this course, Marriage 101. What do you think it is about this course that makes us so popular?
2: I think that the topic is inherently curiosity provoking, right? And we spend the entire quarter talking about attraction dating, sex, intimacy, commitment, marriage, conflict. Like it's pretty hard to resist. This spring, it'll be the 19th time the class has been taught. So it's something that has been um, refined over many years. And um, it's a hard, complicated class to pull off. But the teaching assistants and I work hard to make a really meaningful, emotionally evocative, thought-provoking experience for the students.
0: I find this so fascinating because we always say that you never learn these types of skills. Yeah. Like school and education, they don't teach you how to communicate with others and have relationships and build relationships.
1: I feel like college prepares you conceptually in the workplace and in life. But then it pushes you out into the real world and you have no idea what to do, like in terms of your human relationships, Right. So how did this course even get created? Okay, so it got created when um, back when I was still a graduate
2: student and two of my mentors and teachers, Art Nielsen and Bill Pinzoff, who are couples like longtime couples therapists, were feeling disturbed by the fact that they would spend hours and hours in their offices working with miserable couple after unhappy couple after discouraged couple. And they started to think like, what could we, like, is there any way to prevent this? Like what if we taught people how to do love like before they even had chosen their life partner? And what would that look like? What would we want, what would we want them to know? So a team got together and kind of just like created this class from the ground up. You know, we have a really solid body of relationship science available to us. So in the course we weave together science, clinical theory, Um, narrative, and then a ton of self-exploration. Because there's actually a ton of skills and background and paradigms that if you know them and understand them, you can just be more successful in love. I was a graduate student. I was involved from the beginning as a teaching assistant and a guest lecturer. And then maybe like eight or nine years ago, the class was sort of passed on to me. And it's been really fun to kind of like make it my baby ever since.
1: I'm guessing it's pretty dynamic content because it's probably changing all the time. So, How do you come up with your syllabus? The class is called Marriage 101. It's a little bit of a
2: misnomer because... We really are also working on like it could be called hookup culture one hundred and one. It could be called <laughs> sex
0: one hundred and one. So that's why it's so popular. Yeah, it was college <laughs> students.
2: Yeah, because the thing has happened over twenty years. You know, every once in a while we still will have some engaged students, but twenty years ago when we first started, we had more engaged students. So the biggest, mm. you know, the modern dating landscape, as you two know very well, it's pretty different than what mm-hmm. our students' parents and certainly what yeah. their grandparents um, dealt with. So. I've really backed it up and we really start now with like, okay, let's break down hookup culture and let's break down dating apps and let's talk about what a good breakup looks like. And so we're sort of filling in some of those I'm a Gen X person and My students don't get any older. You know, I come back through the class year after year and the distance between my world and their world kind of grows. So Mm -hmm. I work really hard to try to stay as close as I can to their experiences and bring wisdom and experience, but also compassion because it's really tricky. I think the biggest... we're all trying to get our heads around is, is the impact of technology and what that does to our human relationships.
1: What is the one takeaway from that? Well, I think the one
2: takeaway is when it comes to love and sex and hooking up you got to kick it old school. Like I always think about love as like this sort of like entity, like hanging off to the side, like laughing at all of us who think we can get super clever and use technology Mm -hmm. to do something that is really about like how somebody moves their body and how somebody smells and what you feel like in the space, you know, between you and them. And so a dating app can be used, I think, to find somebody but then as quick as possible you've got to go from screen to screen to face to face and just like Mm -hmm. let the magic and mystery and pull of attraction kind of take you in right you've got to figure that out face to face and we can't like technology our way through love And i think Mm -hmm. the reason there are lots of reasons we try to do that right because when love goes poorly it hurts like hell so The desire to be clever and cut corners is so understandable and so futile.
1: (laughs) I feel like a problem we keep hearing on our show is that people don't give each other enough time because there's that paradox of choice. They feel like if I'm not clicking with this person in five minutes of meeting them, I can just swipe for the next choice. Is that something you also address?
2: It totally is. I've had students say to me like, God forbid you get stuck with like an entree between you and this person. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <Yeah. laughs> right. But when we think about the thing that I'm always inviting and challenging our students to do is kind of flip the lens and imagine what it feels like that somebody else would decide that quickly about you. Mm, that's interesting. The, the, the big concept that drives the class and drives. Um, I, I wrote a book um a year and a half ago. That kind of um, addresses this. It's this idea called relational self-awareness, which is a more important framework than ever. What happens when we swipe is we think, I just have to find the right person, and then that mentality can come into a first date where we think I'm gonna sit down and I'm gonna you know I can decide really quickly whether they're for me or not for me. And the thing that gets lost is looking at how we are showing up, like what's the energy that we are bringing into that date? How are we being experienced by the other person? Mm. So we get into this sort of like consumer mentality, you know? And so I think for sure, attraction and chemistry, they, they take time to unfold. Like you can't see my best self, my deepest self, my most quirky, fun, funky self right away, like that stuff takes a while for me to be able to kind of reveal and unfold. And so I think that's a, a bit of a dangerous mindset. And I do see that. Yes, very commonly.
1: But it's also just about it. It's that exercising empathy and knowing that you're meeting a new human being who's yeah. going through their mm. own journey. And sometimes we forget that you're so yep. right about this, like consumer culture like that, that yeah. we're in. It's kind of like shopping on Amazon, shopping for people. If this is not the product I want, I'm going to look for something better with better reviews. When mm-hmm. we all deserve time to uncover who our many layers totally. are. So we yeah. actually had another guest a while back
0: um, that asked the question, like, do millennials actually even want to find love? Like, are they willing to put in the work of a relationship yeah. that older generations? have done. What are your thoughts from talking to students?
2: Oh, I, I don't have a doubt in the world that, uh, that plenty of millennials want to find love. Okay. I think, I think there is a fear that they can't and there's a cynicism that Mm. sets in And there's a really deep, I think, oftentimes like lack of trust in their own resilience. And there is a massive skill deficit. But I don't have a doubt in the world that what people that people really do long for um, just that the sort of companionship, intimacy, like journeying through life together. I don't I see that very commonly. I think there's a lot of longing and desire for that. Just it's just feels fraught, complicated and hard. It is.
0: Got it. So you think people, there's more fear than undesire. Yes. So what are the skills that millennials
1: yeah. are lacking?
2: I am always also super careful to not, I'm, I'm not trying to come down at all on millennials because I don't know that my generation or the generation above me mm. figured it
0: out any better. True. Um, <laughs> That's true. But, Cause there's different this, challenges. <laughs> yeah. Different
2: challenges. And this whole, this whole element of choice, like there's such an opportunity now yep. To really kind of like buffet style, pick and choose what you want and what you don't want. So the degrees of freedom about what it is to construct a relationship, there are more of those. It's not just sort of like like a plug and chug, like put a person in there. And of course, you know, partner A does this and partner B does this. There's a sort of like um, crafting from the ground up of do we want this or do we want this? Mm-hmm. Do we want monogamy, not monogamy? Do we want... Are we living in the same place or separate places? Like all these different yep. variables that are so cool because when you do create something that feels super authentic and super aligned, it's something that's strong and hearty and exciting, but it just means that you have to have the skill of relational self-awareness, which is like being able to basically look at what the relationship is stirring up in you right now. Nice. I'm feeling whatever. I'm feeling trapped. I'm feeling afraid of losing myself. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling afraid of... And a lot of times, very often, what we, what stirs in us in a romantic relationship is stuff from our past, stuff from our childhood, stuff from the love we saw growing up, um, problems that our parents had that we're terrified to repeat, all that stuff comes up. Mm. um, And so we've got to be able to like know how to work with it when it, it's not a problem if that stuff comes up, because it's going to come up. It's just like, can you work with it within yourself and with that person that you're dating?
1: And how do you work with your students to come up with these issues that they may uncover? Pretty directly. I mean, the major,
2: one of the major assignments for the class is that they go talk to basically like their attachment figures, you know, the Mm. people who raise them, their elders, Mm. um, oftentimes parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles, they're becoming ethnographers, like trying to understand their own family system. And like, how did my family do love? How did my family handle emotions? Because the more you understand The internal map that you bring into everything, like from like the first date, really expectations about gender, expectations about touch, expectations about um, how you navigate difference, all that stuff is there. And so that assignment in particular is one where that's how you become a love nerd, and you like you look at your life as this like infinitely curious thing. Like, oh my gosh, now where did I, where did that belief of mine come it's from? Really that fascinating. you know,
0: well, because anytime you're in therapy, it usually roots down to your attachment styles, right? And that usually comes down to family and the way you were raised or seen, love in other instances show up.
2: Exactly.
1: And so once you uncover these, for a lack of better word, of <laughs> these issues. <laughs> um, what do you do with them? Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> um, I mean, it really I think one thing is you accept that it's the work of a lifetime. Mm. So I'm in year, let's see, my husband, Todd, and I celebrated our 20 year anniversary in August.
1: Congratulations. We,
2: thank you. We've been together since college. Wow. And we'll have a moment where I get triggered by something Mm -hmm. he's done. And my knee jerk reaction is to make it about him. What kind of a person does that? How do you not know by now that that is a bad, silly, wrong, disappointing thing? And so the question is, can I pause, take a breath, and sort of like hold up a mirror and wonder like, okay, so what is it if I'm feeling critical of him, what's going on inside of me? What's the unmet need? What's the longing? And how can I bring my concern to him in a way that advocates for myself without putting him down. So what's
0: an example and could you walk yeah. through like how you would say it to him, how you'd spin it?
1: <laughs> Julie and I are both like taking notes. <laughs> Frantically Like your students yeah. in class. <laughs> right, 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 right.
2: Uh, yeah, it's really awesome. Like whenever Todd and I have a fight, I can pre- I mean, I, you know, when it's like super raw, I can't bring it into the classroom, but I, I pretty quickly bring it into the classroom and I'm like, okay, so here's what I, under-, you know, and it's yeah. always a learning experience. I'm like, okay, I got another piece of this like really... Wild puzzle that is my relationship with this man.
0: (laughs) How does he feel about that?
2: (laughs) I don't, he doesn't really know any other way. We've been together so darn long. He doesn't know any other way. (laughs) So, So what's an example? yeah. Yeah. So, let's say like, I thought he ought to have done something and he didn't do it. Uh I would feel inside of myself like a desire to um, let him know that like that's wrong. And um, and I might even make it to like it feels like you don't even care about me or -hmm. don't you see how busy I am. That's a very common one that I slip into don't you see how busy I am? If I approach him like that, it's going to invite him to put his defenses up. Yeah, but you didn't, you know, you didn't tell me it was important or yeah, but you didn't do these four things Mm -hmm. that I asked you to do. Right. Mm -hmm. So attack invites defense Mm -hmm. versus if I could pause and just kind of like, very often for me, what I have learned about myself is that if I become critical of him, it's because I'm somehow feeling guilty or some amount of shame about what's going on in, in my part of the relationship. And often for me, it's a story about, you know, I'm a, I, I've got teenagers and I've got this like really busy career that I adore. And so I'm more likely to be critical of him if I've been having one of those days where all day long, I've been kind of like critical of myself. You didn't get an Instagram post up today or you forgot to do something for the kids or, you know, you didn't go to the gym this morning, whatever it is. Mm. If I get if I'm getting lost in my own self-critical story, I am much more likely to be critical of him. Interesting. So if I can pause and kind of like send myself some love, like put my hand on my heart, like send myself some love, that will help me. It doesn't mean then that I take my concern off the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, but it means that I say to him, honey, I'm having a really hard time. Like I'm so disappointed that this, you know, didn't get done. I'm having a really hard time. And that's going to invite him to be more sympathetic yep. towards my plight in the world and feel more like a partner. Okay. So what do we want to do about it? Okay. So mm. let's, let's figure out what
0: we're going to do from here. So more of a team effort. In versus the relationship. Versus yeah. you. Mm-hmm.
1: So what is the secret to a long lasting marriage? <laughs> is it finding the right partner or knowing just how to communicate with your partner
2: the, the thing we know with all, all this relationship science there's no such thing as a conflict-free relationship think about all the romantic comedies that we've ever seen in our lives they sort of end you know with the sort of like walking off into the sunset and we don't get to see the four years down, down the road yeah yeah and i think this is this ties back to the online dating is it then lowers our frustration tolerance. And we think the moment that there is one of those like pain points, misunderstandings, disappointment, the knee jerk is to just go back into the pool and find somebody else with the idea that it wouldn't that that thing wouldn't happen if I was with the right person. Right? Yeah, certainly, there are things we ought not tolerate. Nobody ought to tolerate, you know, neglect, abuse, violence, certainly. But I'm not talking about those things. But when there's that moment of friction or misunderstanding, the most successful couples are able to kind of navigate it with a sense of like, what are we going to learn from this? And how can I use this to more deeply understand you? And how can you more deeply understand me? And how can I more deeply understand myself? Mm. So that's, That's the attitude that leads to a long and happy marriage. Interesting.
0: So you talked earlier that you believe that the younger generation and millennials really do want to find love. And you also talked to the the point that the way people approach relationships is more like based off your own needs, opposed to like a set script that has (laughs) been in the past. How do you think people feel about marriage? Do you think the views have changed over the last 10 years?
2: I do. Um... And it's complicated. And some of it has to do some of it has to do with really big macro factors in our economy. I think in order to imagine being a married person and pulling off the kind of interdependence and resource co-mingling that's required of marriage, you have to feel like you can stand on your own two feet and that you can lean on somebody else. And I think that we've got, you know, with like with massive college debt and systemic Mm. Um, inequalities that seem to be only getting worse and worse and this really big divide between haves and have-nots. I think cultures, countries, governments, have a responsibility to create policies that people can um, support themselves and imagine like hitching themselves to somebody else's wagon. So I think that any conversation about like what's happening to the institution of marriage has to always be put in that bigger framework of what's happening around social policy, really.
1: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I've never thought about it that way. I
0: have not either. I think there's been a lot of like discussions that people feel like it's like kind of outdated, like the laws Mm. and all of that piece. Like I've never heard the policy end,
1: which is interesting. Mm -hmm. If you had to make a prediction for 10 years from now, do you think there would be more people getting married or less people getting married?
2: Oh, it's so interesting. I don't know. I mean, the trend line is certainly going towards less people getting married. But what I would love to see is us really creating family-friendly policies in this country and moving towards like um, creating more even playing fields for everybody, and creating more inclusive cultures where LGBTQ plus people feel as woven into the fabric of everything as heterosexual Mm -hmm. people do. So if we can sort of like course correct around some of that, I think that marriage then becomes something really like beautiful and things that people can, something that people can feel proud of and that it is um, theirs to create in a way that feels good to them. Like, but we've got to be inclusive about what that looks like, like what a family looks like and be able to like make policies that, that family can feel really good about and that they are supported and held by their community. So if we can do that, then I think for sure, marriage will start to like go back up again. People will feel more optimistic and more hopeful about what's possible.
1: Well, let's bring up the opposite end of this because some would argue that marriage is actually not a natural structure for us and it's a product of religion or a yep. product of fitting mm-hmm. into the way our economy works. How do you feel about marriage? Is it? Is this something that's that we should accept as a natural course of human behavior? It's time to take a quick break so we can tell you about our current sponsor, Audible. What would it look like if we all listen more? Listening to audiobooks inspires us, motivates us, even brings us closer. And there's no better place to listen than Audible. We love listening to one of our favorite books from our past guest, Madison Perry, called Available, a memoir of heartbreak, hookups, love, and brunch. Hearing Madison's voice tell the story made it even more relatable, comical, and endearing. And now is the time to get that Audible membership for either yourself or someone on your list, as it's that time of year when everyone's thinking about thoughtful gifts. Right now, for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just six months 95 a month. That's more than half off the regular price. Go to audible.com slash dateable or text dateable to the number 500500 today. Again, that's A-U-D-I-B-L-E.com slash D-A-T-E-A-B-L-E or text dateable to 500500 to get started. Now, back to the show. How do you feel about marriage? Is it is this something that's that we should accept as a natural course of human behavior? I kind of like bypass this whole, is it natural or not
2: natural? But I do think that when people are talking about that, what they're often talking about is sexual monogamy. We have historically tied together marriage and sexual monogamy. Those are one and the same. And I think what's really interesting and important and where I have had millennials really push my thinking is around like why would we why do we choose sexual monogamy and what are the consequences of that so I would say in the last five years or so I have become much more intentional about um, saying that part of part of building a relationship with somebody like a new couple is they're kind of figuring out okay we're going to be a couple and what does it look like there has to be a conversation around sexual monogamy oftentimes it is sort of assumed that it's the knee-jerk Natural, of course, is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And that is a setup for sexual boredom, for mm-hmm. infidelity, for boundary violation, mm-hmm. versus a couple who is courageous enough to have a conversation about what does sexual monogamy mean to you? Are we choosing this? If we're choosing it, what are we going to do to keep our sexual relationship really alive and dynamic? And how will we ride the inevitable ebbs and flows of sexual desire? And I think the more we can start to put those conversations into voice and have people not be scared. Like, I think it feels like that conversation feels like it's piercing this bubble that is romanticism. And I think, in fact, the conversations like that are incredibly romantic because they're like, (laughs) what are we going to do? Like, how are we going to take care of ourselves and each other? And what are we going to do about the fact that we're going to be having sex with only each other for a really long time? What's that going to look like for us? How are we, you know? So I love those conversations. I'm all about supporting people having those conversations.
1: What about the conversation of someone who doesn't really believe in marriage versus someone who really wants it? Some, you know, the people who really don't believe in marriage would say, what's the point? Why can't we just be together forever and not have that certificate and not have it recognized by law? What do you Mm -hmm. think about that?
2: I would be so curious to have a conversation with them about where, how do they come to that belief? And, um, and what are the experiences in that person's life that feed and fuel that belief? And if it is a truly authentic belief system, then I think there, I think it ought to be respected. But I think oftentimes a belief system like that forms from a place of fear and from a place of seeing people in your family Mm -hmm. really, really, really screw up a marriage. Uh, Yeah.
0: So it's often,
2: it's oftentimes what happens is when our parent, when we see a really painful thing in the generation of. Above us, we course correct to 180 degrees, yeah. which is really understandable. But what it omits is all of these shades of gray that are in between repetition and. Total opposition.
0: That's super interesting because I think one of the reasons, too, why people are getting married later and really trying to, like, hold out for that, like, by lack of a better term, perfect partner, which is, like, what you brought up earlier, too, about, like, the first sign of things not working, seeing if there's someone better, is because Mm -hmm. our generation before us, there was such a rise in divorce, do you have any thoughts about how that impacted this generation?
2: Yes. Oh my gosh, so many thoughts about it. <laughs> I, you're to- yes. You're totally spot on. The thing that I always say is that you know I'm I'm the product of um, divorce. My parents were divorced and remarried, and um, and so yes, being from a family like that does increase your chances. Yourself of getting divorced, but it also means that you have this like massive invitation to heal and learn and grow, and and then in some ways, people like that who do their work end up being far more safe bets to marry mm-hmm. than somebody who just kind of has their head in the clouds and this like super romantic idea that everything you pick the right person and you you know trot off into the sunset. <laughs> so there's there's data from Harvard from a couple of years ago that shows that about seventy percent of young adults eighteen to 25, wish their parents had talked to them more about love and sex and relationship and marriage. There's a massive, massive area of silence in families. And I oftentimes Mm -hmm. see parents silencing themselves if they went through a divorce and their wound then becomes, I can't do love. I'm a failure at love. Mm -hmm. And so I love when I have the chance to work with those parents and talk about what might you want to share and how could you just, rather than giving advice, Just make space to kind of stand shoulder to shoulder with your young adult and talk about all of it without a need to say, do this or don't do this or don't be like me or any of that stuff. It could just be like, yeah, it's hard and here's the things I've learned and tell me what you're going through and what does it look like for you and what feels the hardest and what feels most confusing That's such important healing.
1: And going back to the example of um, two people in a relationship, one person really believes in marriage, the other one doesn't. How would you address the other person who really believes in marriage? And part of what we've heard from people from doing our show is that they... You know, you almost have to question those people even more. Because a lot of people are just born with the idea of marriage is the is their choice. It, mm-hmm. or it's the only choice expected, they have. Because it's right? expected yeah. socially mm-hmm. and culturally. So how would you address that person in helping them untangle what is actually socially constructed versus what they actually consciously choose?
2: Well yeah. That I mean that's a beautiful way right there is just um yeah, so I think I think I mean I'm obviously a huge advocate for couples therapy. And my students often laugh at like the biggest thing they got out of the class is like they're now in therapy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so start them early.
2: <laughs> which I frankly feel pretty good about. I think yeah. we still have um I think we've done a nice job reducing the stigma for individual yes. therapy, but I think we have a long ways to go reducing the stigma for couples therapy. And yeah. oftentimes couples wait an average of six years before okay. from the moment they know they need help till they actually get help. Wow. And I will tell you as somebody who's been Doing couples therapy for a long time, it is so much harder to disentangle patterns that have been around for years and years and years. So when I have a chance to work with a young couple, I'm super excited. And so (laughs) I would love to work with a couple like this. I imagine a conversation with a couple like this goes something like this. If you love me, you wouldn't expect me to marry you. Yeah, right. but if you love me, you would just get over your fear of marriage and marry me, right? There'd be <laughs> right. some yeah. version of push-pull and pain around, you must not love me because you don't understand how important this is for me. And so it's through couples therapy, we can kind of find the threads. And for the person who is right, hell-bent that marriage is the only way, I want to understand for them, what that's about and very often it's this idea that i'm afraid of being i'm afraid of being abandoned and so my mm-hmm. idea is if we get married you could never leave me and mm-hmm. so there's this like sort of false yep. equating of marriage and um safety a promise a yep. promise of never being left behind you know i could see that mm.
0: so another area that's changed i feel like dramatically is children like i think the generation before it was almost expected if you got married you had children what are your thoughts on that
2: i have noticed that just again like in the last five years i have lots of um i have more graduate students than i would have had 10 years ago i have more graduate students these days who say, you know, they're 25, 26, and who say, like, I just know that I don't want to be a parent. And that's different for me than, you know, 10 years ago, or 15 years ago, knowing graduate students where they probably wouldn't have been as clear. This is something they just don't envision for their lives. I mean, I think a part of it ties to what we were saying before, like, at least in the U.S., We're really lousy at supporting families with little kids. And so Mm -hmm. I think this generation saw their parents like scrambling to Mm -hmm. balance family and career and doing all kinds of, I mean, working really challenging shifts and making really elaborate arrangements and feeling like there was just it was really hard to get all the needs met. And so I cannot really imagine, I can really imagine and empathize with that sense of like, I saw how hard everybody worked. And I don't know that I can do that. And I don't think we're making much progress in that area around family, family friendly policies. And until we do, it's hard to blame people for not wanting to become parents.
0: Well, I think there's a perception, too, that you're, like, giving up your own self
1: in life. Sacrificing. Like, what are your thoughts Mm -hmm. on that?
2: I know. Well, I'm super biased because I feel like I cannot (laughs) even imagine my life without my kids. I'm Mm -hmm. so glad that I'm a mom. And I know, I know that I have to breathe, like, take a deep breath again and again when I – because if I get out of my lane and I start looking at other people in my field – either who don't have kids or whose kids are grown or who had different, you know, I'm primary caregiver in my family system. So I know the ways in which my career is different and is smaller and is not as like, quote unquote, I'm not as like far along as I would have been if either I wasn't the primary parent or if we hadn't have had kids. So when I start to walk down that road of like imagining what if and what would be different i just stop because i stop and i get focused again on like the beauty and bounty of my life choices you know um so i do think yes it is Definitely. Having kids um, requires a really different arranging of priorities. And my gosh, my I learned more from, I'm learning more from my kids than they will ever learn from me. Like they have taught me so much about patience and sacrifice and compromise and love. So it's not a, not a thing that I would have traded in. And I think also there again, like if it's a choice that is truly deeply aligned, like I do not envision myself as a parent. I don't want that. That's very different than somebody who maybe feels really afraid because they had super painful, traumatic experiences as a kid. For those people, I would want them to have a chance to do therapy and kind of reassess. Is it a choice being made from a place of alignment or is it a choice being made from a place of fear and wound?
1: So if you had to give a very quick breakdown of everything you cover in your class for, let's say, a potential new student, <laughs> <laughs> what would that look like? What would someone take away from your course?
2: Like, well, they, they would take away kind of an understanding of the modern love landscape, And sort of how it's different today than it was before and how it's different today than in other parts of the world. So we kind of begin with like this 10,000-foot view. We spend a lot of time talking about sex. And I feel like a lot of what I do is round out really, really incomplete sex education because sex education in our country is really pretty deeply inadequate. And oftentimes gaps have been filled in by pornography. So we spend time talking about how do you come to know who you are sexually and where your boundaries are and what pleasure is like for you and how do you know that and how do you ask for that we talk about conflict how do you fight fair how do you make an apology how do you forgive we talk about expected challenges of of relationship like um what it is to create a home with somebody and some of the challenges that come there we talk we talk a lot about what happens when love bridges cultural difference Mm -hmm. um what is it to be You know, a white Midwesterner who marries somebody who is first generation from Pakistan. What happens there? And how do you work with your family systems and ways in which they're getting triggered? What happens... If you are, you know from a really wealthy family and you marry somebody where um, where they're really, really, really blue collar, that's one of the biggest cultural differences that we don't talk nearly enough about is how socioeconomic difference shows up in an yes. intimate relationship. The students leave with a lot more language and frameworks for how to face the challenges of love. like it's not about, making the challenges go away. It's just about making people stronger to be able to face the complexity.
1: You know, I'm just so mad that I'm the age I am right now. And I I did not have this opportunity to learn this in college. Because, uh, you know, I talked to a 20 year old uh, the other day, and she said, you know, what I don't understand about our education system is that, for example, in math, they teach you a structure and a framework for problem solving. So yeah. they give you a formula and then you plug and chug and that's how you do math problems. Mm-hmm. But for sex education, it's all driven by fear and consequences. Yeah. Yep. And so she said something so fascinating. She said, when I lost my virginity, I realized I was only taught about safe sex, but not how to enjoy sex. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was mind blowing for me. Cause I thought, how did I learn to enjoy sex? I guess, through pornography because where else would you turn to do that and then the pornography enjoyment of sex is totally different than what everybody experiences
0: or dating it's like you learn from these really terrible dating books that have been out there or rom-coms yeah (laughs) which is like the rules and like shit that's like not Communicative at all, basically the opposite of your entire course, probably.
2: Was yeah, so that was why that was the point I got to when I wrote Loving Bravely was Loving Bravely is a book that is sort of like in response to the rules and the advice about dating, and it's much more of like an inside out how to um, become, you know, somebody who knows how to navigate the dating world from the inside out, not because you've like learned the rules and the structure. And I'm now working on a second book and maybe we'll reconnect when that one comes okay, out, yeah. which, is all about, which is all about sex because that's another, I mean, I, that story about um, the 20 year old losing her virginity is, that's the reason that I'm, I'm writing this book is, um, yeah, that, are, that we do a really good job teaching people to be afraid of sex and associating sex with danger, disease, risk, mm-hmm. and sin. And the thing that we know from the data is that the quality of a couple's sexual relationship has a really big impact on their overall relational health and happiness.
1: Yes. But
2: where do people go to kind of have like adult sex education? So this is the oh, book I'm working on now. Amazing. and It's been so fun and so like emotional for me. I cannot even wait for it to come. I can't definitely not want to talk to, to you out. when you do this yes
0: slide. please yeah. let us know when that book is released but i think it's so fascinating though because it's like like all the rules it's like teaching you like a formula that does not work like across the it's board not, yeah
1: it's not for real life right. it's for <laughs> temporary or games. it's like
0: it's a game and it's like tricking someone and like getting the upper hand it's like yeah
1: how to be a scam basically artist.
0: yeah
2: and well, it does that. and basically it reinforces the the idea that I don't know anything, so I need your system in order to be okay versus helping people just really be able to trust themselves.
0: Yep. And it also reinforces the fact that, like, if someone does something wrong, the next person out there, they're just not the right fit. There's more people out there because they don't, they're not responding exactly how you want them to.
1: So if we're not undergrad students at Northwestern, (laughs) how do we take your course? (laughs) That's right. Well, I certainly have um,
2: a lot of, I've got a YouTube channel Mm. and I have um, an Instagram feed and blogs on psychology today and books. And so there's lots of ways in which the lessons from the course are, um, you know, are out there in, in the world. So there's lots of ways to kind of Keep in touch and and go a little deeper on some of these topics with me.
1: And give us your website.
2: DrAlexandraSolomon.com. Yeah, we'll link it as well.
1: Let's definitely sure. do some takeaways. Well, takeaways that Julie and I have, not your, your takeaways. <laughs> no, what did should... you learn from this conversation? <laughs> uh, my biggest takeaway from this, and I, I've been dealing with this for a while, is accepting the fact that someone else's actions are just actions. Yes. And my mind and my brain is what process that action into a feeling for myself. Mm-hmm. So taking <laughs> that moment to step back and say, why am I feeling this yeah. way versus why is this person doing this to me yep. is huge. Cause that's yes. how my parents used to fight. It's pointing fingers. Yes. That's what I grew up with. That's, uh-huh. how, me that's too. how my family's has always been. That's what I've witnessed. But it took me 37 years to realize that this is not the, the most productive way mm. of communicating. Yeah. So uh, unraveling those 37 years of, of witnessing that. And taking the time and effort to just pause is has been really great for me, but also the most challenging thing for yep. me. It takes a lot of effort. I think mm-hmm. my biggest
0: takeaway is the statement that you said that every relationship has conflicts mm-hmm. and that oh, like, yeah. you just have to work through the conflicts and it's mm-hmm. how to do that opposed to trying to find this dream relationship that is completely conflict free because that just doesn't exist so I think like there is definitely that notion especially with the abundance of choice that's out there right now with apps but I think it's doubling down and really just making it work with someone opposed to like always looking for the next option that's really not going to ever result in a perfect relationship either
1: that's right I, I feel mm-hmm. like what I really enjoy with my partner is talking about our past and yeah. not just like relationships yeah. but also how are you brought up yeah and how did your parents show love to each other yes. and being love nerds that you <laughs> would call them because it really helps to understand how someone defines yep. a relationship what that involves what love is and how they like to receive it and these are conversations we never think about having because you just assume everybody thinks the way the same way you You do do, which is not the case (laughs) at all all of us are so different and it's been eye-opening to have these conversations with everybody I've met because you start to realize that love is defined in so many different ways yeah (laughs) I think
0: this generation I think the one part that's really amazing about us finding love you could set your own rules like it's not (laughs) like this like this is what I'm supposed to do I'm supposed to get married I'm supposed to have kids like if that's what you want to do great and if it's not what you want to do that's also great like there's yeah.
1: different things that work for different couples yeah definitely absolutely. Mm-hmm. so to wrap things up what piece of advice would you give to people who are trying to figure out what they're looking for because this is the one thing julie and i have really learned from all of our guests is that nobody really knows what they're looking for so mm-hmm. how do people get to at least a concrete idea of what they're looking for.
2: Part of it is letting go of the expectation that you have to know what it is you're looking for. And just, you know, the idea of mindfulness is so popular in the field of mental health right now. It's Mm -hmm. such a well-researched concept. So I think that when we're in the dating world, a lot, big part of it is just to show up and just be really, really present with this person and just... Rather than assessing, evaluating, future tripping, you know, imagining (laughs) what's going to happen, just be like, let yourself really, really dive into that present experience. And so letting go of the idea that you have to have chapter 13 figured out when you're only on chapter one. I think that's a really, that would be my big piece of advice.
0: So this is super interesting because we've had other guests have other opinions of like having a set goal in mind, i.e. marriage, for example, mm-hmm. and kind of making sure that they're not putting all their eggs in one basket and like really making sure that they're driving to get to their goal of marriage, whether that be like having multiple partners at once or dating around. What do your take about the balance of your goals versus being mindful and present and really letting (laughs) a relationship unfold because we all know it's hard to really get deep with a lot of people when you have work and friends and any other life a life basically
2: Mm -hmm. maybe it's the maybe it's the word goal that i'm struggling with what about if it was um i'm really open i'm really open to intimate partnership like i do think I do think part of the challenge of hookup culture is people, I think women, especially sometimes women who date men can feel pressure that they have to act really chill and no mm. drama and no expectation. And so I, I guess maybe if what those thought leaders are thinking is helping women be like less apologetic mm-hmm. for, so, so I, I do, I, I'm really pro people just standing in their truth which yeah. is, yes, I really, I'm super, I'm really open to a relationship. So maybe it's a difference between openness and goal. Because I, I guess for goal, it again puts us in that energy of strategy, mm-hmm. plan, and a little bit more like transactional, consumery. But I am definitely supportive of of everybody, men, women, and those who live beyond the gender binary being really comfortable with like, yeah, I I really do want to wake up on a Sunday morning next to somebody and just snuggle. And I will not apologize for wanting to love and be loved. I'm definitely for that.
1: That is so refreshing to hear because, you know, on the app Bumble, they have this section called uh, looking for, and you can choose relationship or marriage or you don't know. And I hardly ever see anybody put marriage because I think people think it's like scary to say, I'm looking for a marriage. Yeah. But if if they change the wording to open to right, Mm -hmm. I'm open to these things. Right. Is it
0: one or the other? Or not
1: one or the other. Then it makes it a lot less daunting to just say I'm open to these things. Yeah. Exploring. Or I'm open
0: to like describing your dream relationship. Yeah. Not necessarily like a relationship mirror. like it's so that's so binary. Yeah. Those choices. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. What about I'm open to I'm open to really sitting with you with my one hundred percent full presence and getting yeah. to know you. Like can it just yeah. be could that just because that's where it starts from right, right it's like yeah that's getting what, to know somebody and then everything else flows from there like i i've got i'm getting to know you and i really like what you're about and i really like how how i feel when i'm near you i really like that
0: yeah i really like that mentality too because like even if like yes like marriage is what you want in the future when you're just meeting someone on Bumble, you don't know yeah, want like- to get married to them. Like, <laughs> I don't even know who you are yet. Like, I right. want to do what you just said. I want to yeah. just sit there and get to know you.
2: Yeah. And then you think, I mean, then when you go to gender role socialization, like, we are yet to really raise a generation of men mm-hmm. who would say without apology, absolutely. What I want is to be a husband and a father. Like, no. I think that there's there are ways in which we're kind of like um, stacking the deck against Men because we've we've been quite shaming of men naming their vulnerabilities. You know, I have a I'm the mother of a teenage son who wants to read um, who's really interested in reading romance books. Huh. You know how hard it is to find a romance book with a male protagonist. <laughs> it's like
0: ah, nearly impossible. pretty impossible. Yeah. I love this. Time. I want to ask you before we wrap up one more gender role question. I guess, how have you seen this shift with your younger students?
2: I mean, one thing is that the younger generation is they're they're reconceptualizing gender in ways that weren't possible a generation or two before. Right. So just everything around around being gender queer and having different notions of gender expression, gender identity, gender fluidity, sexual fluidity. There's just a a pretty new, interesting, complicated, rich landscape there. Heterosexual gender dynamics play out so powerfully around dating. And so whenever somebody is stepping out with any kind of creativity, stepping out of that, like, Men are, women are. Yep. it requires it requires self awareness. So oftentimes, my students who are LGBTQ plus are miles ahead of their straight peers around self awareness and sexual awareness because they've just needed to be.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: my heterosexual students are oftentimes, I think, quite held back by the heavy, heavy, heavy gender expectation loadings that mm-hmm. happen around heterosexuality.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you find that like this? There's like this notion of like men having to like make the first move and pay yes. and do all yes. of that. You still see that. Oh my God. Yes. Do you, I mean, I'm sure you guys do too. It's, oh yeah. Yeah. No, I was just curious because it's yeah. like college students. So it's even like a generation below who we're talking to. So I was wondering if that was going away at all.
2: Well, the whole like asking people out on dates is is tricky on college campuses. because That doesn't happen a whole lot. But the place I see True. it showing up is around um, hookups where one of my students was um, telling me recently, she's a a woman who hooks up hooks up with men and she was hooking up with a guy and they were, you know, getting into it. And she said to him, can I talk to you a little bit about what um, gets me off? And he was like, really like flummoxed, like, oh my gosh, no one's ever said that to me before because his script was he just leads and he knows what to do and he knows how to take care of himself and take care of her. And so she was in that moment busting up the script, you know, and saying like, Listen, my pleasure is going to be central and my pleasure is not going to come from, you know, penis to vagina intercourse. So I'd like to have a conversation about how I'm going to get myself some pleasure (laughs) in this experience. Interesting. it's like that's revolutionary, right? That is bringing the, you know, feminist revolution into the bedroom, which is where it is much, much, much needed.
0: So one other last question around just the college students, you said they're not really asking each other on dates. Where do you see like the courting and like dating culture going like in later uh, generations?
2: Well, I think that if we do relationship education, right, it will come back around. So one of the assignments in my class also is they need to ask somebody on a date.
1: (laughs) Oh, nice. Amazing. (laughs) That is so good.
0: And it's,
2: and it really, they just need a nudge. Like it's, it just, it's again, I think that fear of being awkward, that fear of being perceived as um, drama or needy, it's really quite oppressive. And so they just need, there's just is a need to kind of like break through that. And yeah. then people are able to kind of like ask for what they want, which is, I'd like to have some time with you. I'd like to get to know you better. I want to hang out with you.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that just mm-hmm. to wrap up, I think that is like one of the other biggest takeaways on this is like just putting out what you're looking for and yeah. not being so scared. Because if you really do scare someone away, they're not the right person. Yeah.
1: Putting mm-hmm. out what you're
0: open to, not what, what you're right. looking for. True. What you're mm-hmm. open to. We're or are changing what, our language. Or what you're like, what you want in a relationship. Sure. Yeah, sure. definitely. Okay, I love
1: it. this is so good. I'm so getting a fake student ID tomorrow so I can go to your
0: class <laughs> and, move, moving to <laughs> and moving to Chicago.
1: Moving to Chicago, rolling
0: into Northwestern. My cousin does go to Northwestern, so I'm going to ask her if she's taking this class. Oh, oh yeah, my, and if not, I'm going to suggest she gets in Pronto,
1: or <laughs> we'll just take her spot. Yeah,
0: we can, we can go visit her for the weekend.
2: We absolutely. It. <laughs> if you guys visit. I always have. I've got mamas and papas and journalists and all kinds of people. People that's, pop in on the class, so it's nice. always fun. And my door, the doors are always open. We get a lecture hall bigger than what we need, so that we can accommodate visitors.
0: Awesome! What, oh, I'm so there. What does the wait list look like? Like yeah, how many people not, are on there? Yeah,
2: it's not pretty. It's it <laughs> fills up. Yeah, that's my my least favorite day of the year is February 10th because that's when registration opens. It fills quickly. The wait list fills. It's really oh, wow. hard to get into, um, the class. Yeah. That's Which is so part of why, you know, though. I've been writing books and doing all that other kind of stuff to help the material get out there in other forms, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, it's not a fun, not a fun process.
1: That's <laughs> just so incredible because for one, it, it speaks to how great your class is, but also two how much people are willing to learn about marriage and relationships. how much and they need and, this info. But accepting the fact yeah. that they do need yeah. it. Yeah. That's great. That's so great to hear. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Alexandra Solomon, for coming on our show. We Amazing. We've been looking forward yeah. to this episode for so long. <laughs> And it's just so refreshing to hear you talk about marriage and relationships in this way. I'm changing the way I speak about it and Mm -hmm. speak to others about it. So this has been a really productive session. And can you just let us know what your website is again?
2: It is um, dralexandrasolomon.com.
1: All right. For all of our listeners at home, go on the website. (laughs) There is so much knowledge to be learned. But also think about how you can apply to your everyday life instead of just learning the concepts but we could have to apply yep. them in the relationships well. in your life. Yeah. In the relationship. Don't just swipe mindlessly. Right. <laughs> um, and we're also again, looking for guests on our show for future seasons. If you've taken a marriage class before and you want to share your experience, or if you've actually started a course yourself, we'd love yeah. to hear that as well. Definitely reach out to us. We'd love to speak to you. Okay. On that note, we're going to wrap this up. Stay. Your action item for this week is to think about your knee-jerk reactions. You know those natural reactions you get when someone does something or says something. Next time, pause and think about why you get this kind of reaction and how you can change your perspective and mindset so you don't have these knee-jerk reactions next time. This episode of Dateable is brought to you by 500 Brunches. 500 Brunches connects like-minded people with similar interests to meet in real life over brunch. You answer a quick questionnaire about your interests and how you spend your time, and then they'll match you in small groups of six to eight at a brunch spot in San Francisco. Get a free entry into a brunch now by signing up at 500brunches.com and using the code DATEABLE. Where we connect you with datable approved experts to help with everything from dating profile reviews, coaching, and even gathering real feedback about your dating style in a personalized and affordable way. To connect with us, visit datablepodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all under Datable Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and auto download the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast player so you never miss an episode.